opinions expressed on I Care Out Loud are mine and those of my guests. They should not be considered opinions of either Ocular Surgery News or Slack Incorporated, although you and I both know they should be. Hello and welcome to another episode of I Care Out Loud. This is the place where we take stuff that you're just thinking about and say it right out loud. I am Dr. Daryl White and... Here comes something which is destined to be controversial, if for no other reason than it's controversial to begin with, and also I've taken a pretty contrarian view when it comes to flax, femtosecond laser-assisted cataract surgery. Let's start off with some disclaimers. I have nothing to disclaim. I have absolutely no connection from a financial standpoint with any company that makes a femtosecond laser for cataract surgery. I do not consult for any of the companies and do not speak for any of the companies. And I do not use a femtosecond laser for reasons that will become clear in a little bit. So let's talk a little bit about cataract surgery and the history of cataract surgery and, and where flax kind of fits in. I think the the best way to start, as with all things, is go all the way back to the beginning. That would be ancient Egypt and the the birth of cataract surgery, couching. Couching was the original cataract surgery. A thin bamboo uh, rod was used to poke a cataractous lens out of the posterior chamber into the vitreous cavity. Now, you had to be pretty bad off in order for this to be better. Remember that this was well before the advent of any type of lenses. So even those great big thick Mr. Magoo Coke bottle glasses that we saw in patients who had intracapsular surgery weren't available. If you had a dense white cataract, couching was better. Why did people get dense white cataracts? Well, those people who lived long enough were exposed to intense ultraviolet light in the deserts of ancient, almost prehistoric Egypt. And we know from the Waterman study done in the Chesapeake Bay that actually was able to objectively measure ultraviolet light exposure in the people who worked the waters in the Chesapeake Bay, uh, the oystermen they found that there was a direct correlation between ultraviolet light exposure and cortical cataracts. And certainly there's plenty of ultraviolet light around in the desert. For millennia, you took care of cataracts with couching. We come forward to the next stage, and that was the intracapsular cataract extraction. And what took the intracapsular cataract extraction beyond couching was not so much that we did anything very differently. We take the lens out in its entirety, but when this became the treatment of choice, we then had spectacle lenses that could correct for the resulting loss of the refracting power of the lens inside the eye. We should recall that the lens supplies probably a third of the focusing ability of the human eye. Actually, two-thirds, give or take, is done by the precorneal tear film and the cornea. Still, that's roughly 20 diopters or so of focusing power that has to be replaced. And this was done with the great, big, large, aphakic spectacles of the 19th and early 20th centuries. There were multiple different ways to do an intracapsular cataract extraction. 
there were savants who were known to be able to wiggle the lens out, breaking the zonules in such a, a finely tuned way that vitreous loss was less likely. Apparently, there were few of these savants and better, uh, better technical ways to do this needed to be created. And hence, we had the creation of alpha-chymotrypsin, which was an enzyme that would dissolve the zonules, and the cryophake, a probe that actually caused a snowball to form between the end of the probe and the lens, and the lens entirety was removed using the cryophake. Actually, it was a relatively quick procedure. The, the founder of the Shea Eye Institute, Dr. Shea, was known to be able to do cataract surgery in five minutes at the time. The von Grafe knife was essentially a sword that was poked through the cornea, three and nine, pulled up toward the surgeon, and the cryophake was inserted or the uh, zonular forceps were inserted. The lens was removed and then the eye was sutured. Of course, the sutures were around 6-0 or maybe even 4-0 and there was no microscope, so patients were consigned to the hospital. And in the hospital, they had to stay with sandbags on the side of their head, lest they move and break their sutures. Now, keep Shei in mind, because the financial arrangements at Shei actually, believe it or not, predate the kind of things we're going to talk about when we talk about the business of flax. For decades, this was the way things uh, occurred, and then... Sir Harold Ridley in World War II made the discovery that the pilots who were shot down in the Battle of Britain and had shards of their canopies penetrating their eyes didn't have any reaction to those uh, pieces of the canopy. And the canopies were made of PMMA, polymethylmethacrylate, which of course became the next original huge development in cataract surgery. And initially, these were placed in the anterior chamber, which incidentally spawned the entire subspecialty of cornea in ophthalmology, as we needed people who could be uh, facile at doing full thickness corneal transplants to replace all the corneas that had been wrecked by poorly designed anterior chamber intraocular lenses through pseudophagic bullous keratopathy. Those that worked well worked extremely well, and it liberated people from the need to wear the great big aphecate glasses. They did wear glasses that had huge astigmatic corrections because, of course, we still had large incisions, now more like 9 to 11 millimeters rather than 180 degrees with the von Grafe knife. The next iteration of these surgeries was then the extracapsular cataract extraction. The extracapsular cataract extraction was actually tried before intracapsular cataract extraction, but there was a nearly 100% opacification of the posterior capsule when it was first tried in the 50s, causing cataract surgeons to abandon it. There was no easy way for cataract surgeons to resolve that posterior capsule opacification. In the 1970s, with the advent of posterior capsule uh, intraocular lenses, PCIOLs, and better surgical technique with the advent of the ubiquitous use of a microscope, we then had the cataract surgery moving almost entirely to the posterior chamber. 
the poster capsule still opacified a tremendous percentage of the times, but they were now treated with something called decision, which I think is D-E-S-C-I-S-S-I-O-N or S-I-O-N. And in a decision, the surgeon, usually at the slit lamp, would go through the limbus and go posterior to the intraocular lens with a bent needle and simply tear the posterior capsule. This, of course, was rendered obsolete with the 1980s creation or invention of the YAG laser. I actually was able to see a a really early version of the YAG laser when I did a, a very short time at Georgetown when I was a medical student. And the laser was initially used for things like treating Iris Bombay, acute narrow angle glaucoma attacks, but very shortly it was then also applied to the posterior capsule opacity. I never practiced in an era where I didn't have a YAG laser. So posterior capsule opacities were little more than an inconvenience and they could be solved with a YAG laser capsulotomy. The next great innovation in cataract surgery was phacoemulsification. Charles Kelman was the found was the creator of phaco and the value proposition going from extra cap to phaco was the small incision. Smaller incisions caused less induced astigmatism and there was a definite instant improvement in outcomes once phacoemulsification got to the point where you didn't have patients having trouble with rect corneas because of the early versions with too much ultrasound being directed up toward the corneal endothelium. And this is important. People who are femtolaser advocates like to say that phaco, like to say that phaco was adopted without a clear technical or outcome advantage. And that's simply not true. The initial three to three and a half millimeter phaco incision was absolutely superior because you were replacing a nine millimeter incision with a three and a half millimeter incision and the induced astigmatism was two orders of magnitude less. So here you had a definite benefit and thus began, began the era of phaco along with FACO, multiple folding intraocular lenses of various different types and degrees. The foldable intraocular lens was made possible by the capsulorexis, the continuous curve capsulorexis. And there are a number of doctors who should have some accolades given their way, sent their way because of the wide adoption of the capsulorexis. I think Dr. Peter Utrata at Ohio State was one of the first, and I still use a Utrata forcep when I make my own capsulorexis. Now, over the years, through all of these developments with cataract surgery, couching to intracap to extracap to phaco, there was one uniform financial aspect to the experience. All of these procedures were paid for by insurance for those people who had health insurance. Now, of course, there's no way for me to know whether or not couching was covered, but 
You'll forgive me if I say that couching was a covered procedure in the days when Cleopatra rode from paramour to paramour with her atropine-dilated pupils, causing her to be ever more attractive. But we know that since the time of Medicare and the end of the days where we would have elderly Americans destitute because of their financial ruin caused by health uh, bills or, uh, you know, bills for their medical care, we have had a covered procedure with cataract surgery. Indeed, when we went from extra cap to FACO, those of you who are old enough will remember that FACO was actually reimbursed to the surgeon at a higher rate. When I was a resident, when I was finishing my residency in 1989 and 1990, an extracapsular cataract extraction paid on average from Medicare about $2,200 to the surgeon. The average surgery in the United States took between 30 and 40 minutes, and the really, really fast extracap surgeons were able to do it in about 10. There was a guy in Brooklyn who was one of our uh, one of our professors at NYU, and he could do it in about eight and a half minutes. Fastest suture I've ever seen in my life. But not only was the next generation of cataract surgery covered, but there was an acknowledgement that it was a more difficult procedure to master, and the surgeons were reimbursed at a higher level. Behind the scenes, because almost nobody owned a surgery center back in those days, behind the scenes, there was also a pass-through, if you will, for the additional cost of buying the new equipment. FACO machines cost well over $100,000 back in the 80s. And I know this because as chief resident at NYU, I did the negotiations and helped to install the FACO machines at the Manhattan VA, at Bellevue, and at what was at the time NYU University Hospital. And I did it just in time to leave to go on to my next uh, my next assignment. So of the five uh, senior residents, I was the only one who didn't get trained at FACO. Kind of ironic. But every single development in the history of cataract surgery was covered by insurance plans. Something happened in the early 2000s, which has fundamentally changed how we take care of cataract patients. And let's go back to Dr. Shea and look at his business model. There were three different ways that patients were taken care of at Shei when he was there. The vast majority of patients were taken care of in kind of an assembly line fashion. And remember that the patients had to stay in the hospital for a week with sandbags in the side of their head. These patients re um, recovered in hospital wards. There would be you know, 10, 20 beds of cataract patients lined up in a single room taken care of by a nurse who went to bed, from bed to bed. These patients were either covered by insurance, their surgeries were either covered by insurance, or uh, they were done for free. There was then a ward that had semi-private rooms. The semi-private rooms had two hospital beds, same surgical experience, same recovery, but only two people in the room with a single nurse taking care of them. These patients were charged a premium. And I think uh, my former partner, uh, the late Ken Coster, who trained at Shei, said it was something like $500 an eye. Now remember, this was back in the 50s, and $500 was a princely sum. 
and there were two private rooms. Now, the private rooms had no prices. And Dr. Shea would simply say to the people, say, well, how much does that cost? Well, I'm sure that you'll do the right thing. And here was where the wealthy went, and they had a very wealthy experience. They spent the same seven days with sandbags on the side of their head. But they paid well more than $500 for the experience. Dr. Shea had created a value proposition based on the experience that you had around the time of cataract surgery. Now, in the early 2000s, a guy named Andy Corley was running a company called Ionics, which had originally uh, been called C&C. And Arthur Cummins and Andy Corley were the C's, I think. And I'm sure that Andy will find me and correct me if, if I'm wrong. But they had done the work to create a different type of implant that gave more than basic vision. The crystal lens was able to give some accommodation or pseudo-accommodation. I think it's still controversial, but many patients, a majority of patients, not only got good distance vision, but got at least good intermediate distance vision from the placement of a crystal lens without an additional pair of glasses. And some people actually got terrific vision. They saw very well at distance, they saw very well at arm's length, and they saw very well at near. Here is where things got a little bit different with cataract surgery. Even in the days when doctors bought their own implants and placed them in patients' eyes, it was not the patient who paid for that implant, it was the insurance company that paid for the implant. But here, Andy Corley and Ionics petitioned Medicare and they petitioned for the right for patients to choose to pay their own money to upgrade their implant experience. Patients were given the ability to have a better lens that was considered not medically necessary, but desirable. Andy Corley should get credit for this. Andy Corley's company did the hard work of going to, to Washington, D.C., sitting in rooms with, I think it was HMS at the time, and convincing the people in the bureaucracy of Medicare that this was going to be a favorable thing for the elderly patients in the United States. And starting in 2003, I think it was April of 2003, when the Crystal Lens was FDA approved and available for use, we started a brand new era of finance in the United States for cataract surgery. Patients could choose to upgrade their lens. We called them premium intraocular lenses. I prefer advanced intraocular lenses, but I think that's just semantics. And thus began in the, the era of refractive cataract surgery. The next great innovation in cataract surgery, in the continuum that begins with couching, goes through intracapsular surgery, through extracapsular surgery, fake emulsification in the advent of the refractive IOL was femtosecond laser assisted cataract surgery. Now, I've given you a false timeline. I think it's false timeline. I've given you the timeline that the four manufacturers of femtosecond lasers for cataract surgery would like you to believe, and that is that I have included the Andy Corley principle as part of the FACO timeline. 
and I think that's a false narrative. If femtosecond laser is truly the next logical step in the true cataract pipeline, from couching to intracap to extracap to phaco, why is it that our patients are being asked to shoulder the cost of a new way to do what we've done for decades? Why is it that patients are being told that this is a superior procedure, that this is the best procedure, and then being asked to pay out of their pocket? It's literally the equivalent of somebody having cardiac bypass surgery being told, well, listen, you know, you can have the traditional manual thing where somebody's going to go in there, or you can have robotic surgery, which we all know is better, but it'll cost you $10,000 to upgrade your cardiac bypass surgery. Because the dirty little secret, and it's not really much of a secret at all, is that if you do large studies that are done by independent doctors looking at outcomes, real patient outcomes, where you compare apples to apples, and not only that, but you compare Macintosh apples to Macintosh apples, what you find is that in the vast majority of cases, there is no difference in the outcomes if you look at the same surgeons between traditional phacomulsification where everything is done by the surgeon's hands and femtosecond laser assisted cataract surgery where some of the uh, parts of the procedure are done by the laser and some of the parts of the procedure are done by the patient's hands. The cynical way that this has been uh, promoted by the makers of femtosecond lasers is appalling in my opinion. We are still seeing articles being published where the conclusion is that femtosecond laser produces a better uncorrected visual outcome where you're comparing patient populations that have had femtosecond laser surgery with femtosecond laser LRIs compared with patients who have traditional surgery where the astigmatism is not addressed. It's apples to oranges. It's apples to kumquats, for goodness sakes. It's not the same thing. If you look at surgeries where the same patients are being treated by the same surgeon who is a good surgeon and astigmatism is being treated in both or not being treated in both, what you find is that at best there's an infinitesimally small difference between the two surgeries. We're talking like an eighth of a diopter difference. If you look at complications, again, there's an infinitesimally small difference between the two procedures, traditional phacomulsification and flax. And indeed, in some studies, it turns out that flax has a higher complication rate. Now, to be fair to the people who are studying that, in some cases, they're using flax on their, very, their most difficult patients, white cataracts almost black cataracts, using the femtosecond laser in order to try to increase the safety of the surgeries in those most difficult surgeries. Now, I want to step back just for a second and say that I am utterly and profoundly impressed by the engineering that has gone into the femtosecond lasers that can be used to do cataract surgery. It's awe-inspiring. They make a perfectly round capsularexis. 
whether or not that makes a difference. They can make the capsular rexes any size you wish. Of course, you need to have a, a pupil that's big enough. They make your incisions wherever you wish, to whatever depth and length you wish. They can do limbal relaxing incisions. They can soften the cataract. I think that's all really terrific. In all but the most extraordinary surgeon's hands, we should realize and they should acknowledge that it doubles the time of the surgery. In these days of scarcer resources, if we think of cataract surgeons as resources, I think that's an issue. It's an issue that's really not addressed. And again, there are some surgeons who do this in a highly efficient manner. But it still takes longer. I have a friend in Baltimore who does 30 to 40 surgeries a day. Prior to femtosecond laser, this surgeon would be able to be done by two. Now the surgeon is operating until five. Why do people use the femtosecond laser surgery? Well, the vast majority of people are doing it for business. Let's be honest. The vast majority of people are doing it because it allows them to promote some of those refractive cataract versions that Andy Corley ushered into existence back in the early 2000s. You can take care of a relatively small degree of astigmatism with a femto LRI and be justified in doing femto and upcharge for the femto. You can extol the virtues of the femtosecond laser, and there are virtues, a repeatable capsularexis of perfect centration and perfect size. I think that's a virtue, even though no one's really been able to prove that there's an outcome difference. By doing so, you then have the right to charge whatever you wish. You can charge just for the laser, you can add the laser charge on top of whatever you're charging to put in a toric IOL or a presbyopia correcting IOL and extended depth of focus IOL, whatever you wish. In our era of continually decreasing reimbursement for our services for cataract surgery, despite our ever-increasing expertise in the continued march toward ever greater excellence on the, the part of cataract surgeons, it's natural to see the attraction. It's natural to see the attraction. However, there are certain things that they just don't feel right, at least to me. I do a tiny bit of work uh, as a defense expert in malpractice cases. And I happened to be doing a case one time, and the, it wasn't about the use of femtosecond lasers and anesthesia complication, but I noticed that the surgeons had discussed with the patient the use of a femtosecond laser and treatment of astigmatism where the astigmatism that was treated by topography and keratometry was a quarter of a diopter. Come on. None of us treat a quarter of a diopter of cylinder if we're not using a laser. I think that all of this has come about because of the cynical way that the device makers have abdicated their responsibility to do the hard work that Andy Corley did so many years ago. Andy went to D.C. Andy lobbied tirelessly for the right to charge 
for what was arguably a reasonable thing, a patient's ability to buy something which was not medically necessary. If you are willing to say that the femtosecond laser is not medically necessary, sure, great. That's the Andy Corley principle, but that's not what we're hearing. We're hearing people throw around terms in a rather casual manner that really shouldn't be done in a casual manner, like standard of care. People have the chutzpah to say that femtosecond laser is the standard of care. It's not even best practices. It's another way to do things. And the reason that we're in this position where surgeons are placed in the awkward position of perhaps finding or feeling that they need to do this to survive, let alone thrive, is wrong. And the blame sits at the feet of the manufacturers. Because not a one of them went to D.C. and said, hey, this is the next iteration of cataract surgery in a timeline that goes back to the days of Cleopatra and the hegemony of Mesopotamia. Now, lest you think, (laughs) again, that I'm just an old dude, kind of a curmudgeon sitting in his kitchen and, uh, you know, grumbling, which, you know, I might be, there are some real bright spots here. I don't think that femtosecond laser really makes good surgeons all that much better. It might make surgeons who are less confident feel more confident, but I think the really good surgeons were really good before that. And because of that, I think it's important when people who are nationally famous for being outstanding surgeons decide to use the femtosecond laser and to use it on every single case. Every single case. Even those cases where they can't in any way, shape, or form justify charging the patient extra. Remember that in order to charge the patient, you have to be doing some sort of a refractive procedure. You must treat astigmatism. You must be treating presbyopia. You have to do something, and not everybody needs that, and frankly, not everybody wants that. And not everybody is willing or able to pay for that. There are two groups in the United States, two groups of fantastic surgeons who have decided that in their hands, they are convinced that their surgeries are better with the femtosecond laser. There are lots of people who do that, but there are two groups who are so convinced that they are not willing to let the patients decide that they don't want femtosecond laser-assisted cataract surgery. So they are literally putting their money where their mouths are. And they should be called out because they are saying to the device makers, you know, we think that you're right on the science. We think that you're wrong on the business model. And because we think you're right on the science, we can't in good conscience allow your business model to go forward. And and I want to call them out. The first is Shaq Tarber and his group in the Mercy Hospital system in St. Louis. And Shaq's group of surgeons did a study where they compared their outcomes with flax and without flax. 
And in truth, I don't think I saw any difference in the outcomes except in complications. And they felt that their complication rate was enough lower with flax that they could not in good conscience do anything but flax for everybody for whom they could do it technically. And so for several years now, Shaq and his group have done femtosecond laser cataract surgery on every single patient who's come through, regardless of whether or not it was a refractive procedure, regardless of whether or not they could charge the patient, regardless of whether or not the patient was choosing to upgrade their experience. Every patient who had their astigmatism treated uh, was charged, and whether that was done with an LRI or a toric IOL, every patient who had a presbyopia correcting IOL was charged. But those patients who couldn't afford to have it done, or those patients for whom it wasn't a desirable thing to get out of glasses, also had femtosecond laser surgery done, and they weren't charged. Now, we should say that there were certain financial uh, advantages that Shaq's group has. They practice in a large hospital group, and so therefore they uh, do their surgeries in a hospital outpatient department, or HOPD, and the reimbursement in the HOPDs is, I think, 160% of what it is in ASCs for Medicare. So the reimbursement is something on the order of fifteen or $1,600 for the HOPD for, PD for Medicare. And for commercial plans, it can be as high as $3,000. And so even though there's uh, a dramatic increase in the cost of doing it, there's a buffer there. Still, this is a bone of contention between Shaq's group and the administration, but they have said, we can't in good conscience do anything otherwise. All well and good, but how about those people who are working in ASCs? Average reimbursement, I think, in the United States for an ASC for Medicare is $970. Average reimbursement for commercial plans is something on the order of fifteen dollars or $1,600. So you're talking about an across-the-board average reimbursement of oh, somewhere in the, the $1,100 to $1,200 range. We know that if you roll a femtosecond laser in, it costs about 900 bucks a case. If you buy a femtosecond laser and pay the click fee, Depending on how many cases you do, it typically costs anywhere between, I don't know, four and $600 a case to amortize your laser. There's a group in Seattle, and my friend Audrey Tally Rostov is, uh, is part of that group. And Audrey does nothing but femtosecond laser for every single one of her patients. And she does it for the same reason that Shaq's group does it. She feels that in her hands, it's a better procedure. She feels that she's a better surgeon, that she gets better outcomes, and I haven't seen any of her outcomes. She hasn't published anything, but she's been very clear that she cannot in good conscience only offer femtosecond laser to those patients who are willing to do a refractive cataract surgery. Now, Audrey's part of a private group. They have one or two or three outpatient surgery centers, and they are not affiliated with a hospital. So they have standard ASC reimbursement rates. And Audrey has gone to the manufacturers of her lasers, and they've negotiated a set fee over the course of the year. And that fee is paid for by those patients who do the upgraded surgeries. 
in a way that allows Audrey's group to do the surgery in a manner that's not financial suicide. Now realize that they would make more money if they played it straight. They would make more money if they only did the femtosecond laser surgeries for those people who were choosing a refractive cataract option. Treat the astigmatism, correct presbyopia. I have not only no quarrel with surgeons who've made the decision in the manner that Shaq Tarber and Audrey Tally Rostov have made it, but I have almost limitless respect for them. I still don't think if they ran their numbers that there's enough difference in the outcomes, if there's any difference at all, to justify doing flax on the base of patient outcomes. I think from an economic point of view, thinking about it at the societal level, I'm not sure that we can justify doing flax at all, but certainly with the present business model. And it would be hard to justify, even if Medicare and the insurance companies covered it, if it really does take 50% longer to do the surgeries, and you don't really get much of an improvement in outcomes. But here, I'm going to throw, you know, a tiny little bone to the flax advocates and say that in the beginning years of FACO, it was kind of like now with the beginning years of flax. We may very well look back in another 5 or 10 or 15 years and see that there were some unforeseen benefits to doing flax, just like there were some unforeseen benefits to doing FACO. Even Dr. Kelman could never have foreseen the types of things that would come from his fake emulsification. I mean, he, Charlie Kelman never dreamed of something like the crystal lens, and heaven knows the new trifocal lenses that are out were you know, but a pipe dream at the time. But those things could only have happened if you could do your surgery through a small incision and do it in such a way that you left a pristine cornea. So there may yet be something which will be persuasive and unavoidable about flax in the future. And I'm willing to say that that's possible. But with the exception of people like Shaq and Audrey, who are doing it on everybody, I think everyone else is being put in a difficult position because nobody at any of the device companies was willing to do what Andy Corley did, which was put his company on the line put the future of an entire part of the industry on the line by going to D.C. and saying, this is the next thing that should be done. And the parts of it that are integral to the surgery should be covered. So that's my take on flax. I'm 60 years old. I'm likely to operate for another, I don't know, 8 to 10 years. I'll bet that if flax is as good as the people who are advocates say it is, that I'll do flax sometime over the course of my career. I don't feel that it's necessary for me and for my patients now, for all the reasons that I've enumerated. But people I know and really like and really respect disagree with me, people who do what I do. And they have been willing to literally put their money where their mouth is and do it on everyone. And those are the people I'll be looking to each time I revisit Flax for me and for my patients. I'm Dr. Daryl White. 
that's the most recent episode of I Care Out Loud, you know you were thinking this. Come on, you know you. I'll see you.